0: Uh, hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Riesby. Uh Hello, joining me as always via the medium of satellite technology is the brother from another planet, it's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? Good. I'm currently getting used to uh, being
1: 29.
0: Hmm. Um. I think you. I saw your tweet this week. Said that you could finally listen to that Ryan Adams album.
1: Yeah. Um. Which is uh probably one of my more niche tweets. Because yeah. I'm not sure how many people are were really into the album 29 by Ryan Adams when it came out 10 years ago. mm Well, I was. I'll tell you that for free. It's a good record. It's a good album. Yeah, and
0: uh, I think it was one of about sixteen albums he released that year. Um, yeah, he put
1: out one double album uh, with the Cardinals. Is uh, that his
0: band was it? Yeah, there? he did Blue Card- Roses that year, and that was a a, a a single album stretched into a double album, if I've ever
1: seen yeah. one. And then there was another one he did with a different band, and then there was one solo one. That was that was around about the point that I started tuning out Ryan Adams just because. There was the it, he didn't really seem to have much of a filter.
0: No, no. He was he was making kind of ridiculously it was ridiculously prolific. And there was some really good stuff in there, but you had to wade through quite a lot. And about well, I went to see him live around the same time and um he didn't play the hits. He played like nine minute versions of album tracks that no one cared about. Um <laughs> uh, and then he played um some uh death metal at the end and he had a song called Han Solo's Medicine Cabinet, which wow. uh, uh, I always appreciate it. Anyway, this is not a Ryan Adams podcast. This is a films podcast, and uh, where a better place to start talking about films than this week's films news? It's been a very busy week. We talked last week about um, Ian McShane joining the cast of Game of Thrones. This week, in this week's kind of cranky old actor joins Game of Thrones news. Uh, Max von Sydow has joined the cast.
1: Yeah, which uh, is quite a get mm. <laughs> for them. Well, uh, Oscar nominee. Uh, for probably his worst film um uh and he may have been nominated before then but that's i, I remember him being nominated for in, uh, extremely loud and incredibly close and thinking that's not deserved no. <laughs> or, or that shouldn't be his legacy uh, but yeah that's kind of crazy I mean, obviously it's a huge show and everything like that but it's the the uh i wasn't expecting the worlds of you know bergman favorite <laughs> max von sidow and uh and Game of Thrones to collide, mm, yeah. And coming off the back of Star
0: Wars as well, which kind of he's in, but normally he seems to know as what. But yeah, it's uh, yeah a decent a decent haul for them. And yeah, I kind of ho- I really want to see him and McShane together, although it seems unlikely.
1: I imagine they'll be kept fairly far apart because he's been cast as the uh, the three eyed crow, which is. The guy who everyone last saw at the end of season four as a man who was kind of half tree. Okay. he doesn't really have many opportunities to kind of wander off and enjoy the company of the rest of the cast. Yeah,
0: yeah. They probably wanted someone who had kind of fairly sturdy theatrical roots for that job.
1: Yeah, or someone who would be perfectly happy not moving.
0: (laughs) Mm, And they didn't want anyone who would not yeah, <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Anyway, yeah. Next up, uh, well, well, there was quite a bit
0: of TV news uh, this week, wasn't there? Because the, it was the uh, Television Critics Association thing, wasn't it, all week?
1: Yeah, it was. There was lots of uh, news coming around about TV shows that are in the offing or TV shows that are currently on the air and are coming back. And there was also a great uh, infographic that was doing the rounds online, which showed the extent to which television production has ramped up over the last six years I think from 2009 Mm. and it demonstrated that uh, I think in 2009 there was something like 206 scripted programs on television uh, in America and last year there were about 370. Wow. Uh, And this year there's probably going to be more than 400 so when people talk about the, the, the glut of Television and how hard it is to keep up with everything. That uh, graphic is the best example of of why that is.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, we're going to be doing a um another TV episode soon. Kind of, we promised ourselves we would re- revisit um the subject of television, which we haven't done for the kind of since episode three. And I think that would be kind of what we'll be focusing on. Just how much has changed in such a short time. It's kind of pretty kind of staggering. What is also staggering is the news that came out of Tinseltown this week that for some reason that eludes me and most people, we're getting two more Bad Boys films.
1: Yeah, I think it seems to be a case that the studios are increasingly just rifling through their old back catalogue of thinking, what series have we not made a film of for a while? And they mm-hmm. realised, oh, we haven't made a Bad Boys film in 10 years, so we'll make two more. Although... I thought it was interesting they're quite cagey on whether or not it will actually star Will Smith and, or, and Martin Lawrence. Right. Be- uh, because I kind of can't see any reason why anyone would make those films about those two guys, because it's so much dependent on their chemistry. It's not like there's a, um, a rich backstory to draw on or much of a mythology that they can just plop two new actors into.
0: Mm, maybe so they're going to kind of expand universe universe with all of Michael Bay's films. What a horrible thought. That is. I don't really understand why that's happening. And also, don't understand why it's happening news, the Hobbit trilogy are getting a cinematic re-release this year, but in extended versions. And for those of you who were kind of much like us, staggered that it was extended beyond one film in the first place, this news is even more baffling, especially since there is a rumour circulating, and I wouldn't possibly want to kind of comment on rumours. But the
1: third part of it is believed to be rated R. That's a very strange room. I can only assume that there was a lot of blood cut out of the battle scenes, which mm. uh, I could kind of see that that part being the one most likely to get improved if they were to make the action a little more visceral. Or if uh, it just turned out that there was a, they, every so often they would just do a take where uh, Billy Connolly was just swearing up a storm. Yeah, he drops sea
0: C-bomb like several times, possibly. <laughs> um yeah, they might have just put some B-roll footage in there. Yeah. I I I I mean, obviously it's a cash grab, but like is there really the appetite for
1: people who wanted to see more of that and kind of longer? I'm sure there must be because those films, you know, we we both did not we did a whole episode on it and we were both kind of a bit mixed on it and and on the whole probably not too high on those films, but there are people out there who did really enjoy them and I'm sure People will come out for it, but it'll probably be... I'd be very surprised if they they get a huge boost in in box office as a result.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. Seems like a funny one to me. We talked last week... Well, I mean, you desperately shoehorned the release of Wet Hot American Summer's first day of camp into last week's episode. And I've now finished watching it and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I think I actually enjoyed it more than the film, actually. I just like spending time with those characters, I think. But this week, there's been a documentary drop on uh, various things. Uh, it's on Netflix and YouTube, and generally quite easy to watch if you can kind of if you have access to the information superhighway. Did you see it, the Hurricane of Fun
1: documentary? No, I keep meaning to, uh, but I haven't. I haven't had chance to. I do like. Is it my understanding that it's not really so much in terms of talking heads or legacy? It's mere more just an assemblage of footage from the film being shot
0: yeah it's basically when they shot it the first time around they had someone doing the kind of EPK stuff running around with a kind of a pretty old-school camcorder filming everything and there are little kind of individual interviews done on set and it's just really fun to see just how much of a all-out kind of like uh, camp experience it was because mm-hmm. uh, they, I didn't know this. They stayed on that, that camp. They closed down most of its user sets, but they all slept in dorms um, and they were a lot of them were like straight out of drama school. A lot of them uh, were in their first films. So it kind of it appears the little caption under each person when they're introduced for the first time and talks about their first film jobs. It was Elizabeth Banks' first film. It was Bradley Cooper's first film. It was Joe Trujillo's first film. It was a lot of people's first films. And uh, it's just fun to kind of see stuff and find out facts I didn't know, like Bradley Cooper um, skipped his drama school graduation to film that sex scene with Michael Ian Black, <laughs> Uh which is pretty funny. And then uh, it's only about an hour long. Uh, it's pretty insubstantial as documentaries go. It's not like Hearts of Darkness or Burdens of Dreams or anything, but uh,
1: it's it shows them getting drunk a lot and having a great time. I, I do think that that uh, kind of convivial atmosphere is, is one of the things that makes the the film so charming because it does seem like you're just watching a bunch of people who really enjoy each other's company having a lot of fun and mm-hmm. I think that also is uh, something that works with the, the TV series as well in that you're just watching a bunch of people some of whom have hung out a lot since that and some who haven't seen each other in years just reconvening and, and having fun again. Mm. And, and so it kind of feels more like a slightly bawdy uh, high school reunion than uh, being at camp. Mm.
0: I love the I love the TV show. I think it was fantastic. And and the idea that they shot all of multi Oscar nominee Bradley Cooper's scenes in one day <laughs> see, see and then kind of replaced him with someone wearing a balaclava for, for the rest of it uh, but whilst making a very funny gag out of it. Was was pretty good, and I I loved that everyone came back for that because if 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 one person hadn't come back for it, it would have maybe taken the shine off. I think.
1: Yeah, it 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 certainly gives the sense again that these people genuinely like each other, and I think without that quality, it it would have felt a lot less, you know, or or it would have been like the Arrested Development season four, which I like a, a fair bit, but I do think has massive problems in that you can really see where they're green-screening people in or they're they're struggling to hide the fact that they couldn't get their whole cast together. Mm. And I think that uh, Wet Hot American Summer does that a lot better because they lampshade it better, such as having the guy pretending to be Bradley Cooper say, hey, it's me, Ben. I'm really (laughs) here, (laughs) when he's just wearing a ski mask. But also, it's so uh, not (laughs) plot-driven and so fragmented to begin with that it doesn't feel you don't really notice so much that the characters aren't all together all the time
0: yeah yeah it's, it's funny to mention Arrested Development season four because I've kind of just completed my annual Arrested Development rewatch uh, which is always a joy um and we we've done an ep- a whole episode about Arrested Development season four was it last is it last year is that when it came out is it that long uh, ago two, is it two years ago? ago so I kind of always kind of thought after our discussions, I always kind of um, had Arrested Development Season 4 as flawed, but otherwise pretty good. I had its problems, but kind of just about gets over them. I would like to uh, downgrade my rating of Arrested Development Season 4 to a fucking shambles. <laughs> because I'm watching it again, especially after watching 1, 2, 3, and then into 4. It just kind of really feels like a different show. And in mm. for a lot of it, for... I think kind of six or seven episodes out of the 13 or 15 I think there are um, a hefty portion it doesn't feel like a particularly good show
1: yeah it is it is kind of a more amorphous and the fact that those episodes do vary in length and quality and some of the characters can't really sustain a whole episode I remember the Lindsay episode didn't really work too well, mm. um, but I haven't watched it in the two years, so I, I can't say exactly which stuff didn't work for me. I think, for me, it ends strongly enough that it all feels kind of worth it. Yeah, but...
0: the, the, it's definitely a stronger last three or four episodes, from the Job and Tony Wonder episode, which is fantastic, Yes, uh, <laughs> to the kind of emotional uh, punch, uh, pun intended, of the final episode. I think those are really good, but... Jesus Christ, this first half of that season is such a slog and there's so many jokes in there that are like I get the impression this wouldn't have even made the first round of talks in the writer's room the first time in, you know, the kind of the golden age of that show. The whole the Barky Mark stuff and some of the sweat lodge stuff is just so flabby and uninteresting and the the kind of the prison reality show that, that uh Lucille is in. I i, I I've heard about that. There's there's like a re-edit on the way, isn't it? I think we mentioned this before and, and kind of, we know it's happened. It's not just kind of rumour because Ron Howard kind of tweeted himself re-recording his voiceover. So if that's, he was doing that, we can very much assume that that was one of the last things that was done. Then it must be somewhere. And I just don't know where it is because in that 15, or uh, well, kind of seven hours of TV that there is, there's probably a four-hour <laughs> mini-series there that's amazing.
1: Yeah, I think... If it if it ever sees the light of the day, it will probably be to coincide with the the fifth season, which mm. uh, is apparently underway, and hopefully, based on that, they said they're going to try and commit to having as many of the cast together and not having such a jumbled shooting schedule and things like that. And obviously, they would go into it with the experience of season four and maybe knowing what not to do um, yeah. this time around, such as maybe having the final edit locked. Sooner than the day before it went on Netflix. Yeah. Um. I do. I do think also a large part of the problems to it probably stemmed from Mitch it's just being so amazed that the show was coming back that he was just trying to get the thing made and maybe l- being a little less concerned with quality,
0: mm. yeah. but still
1: trying to do a good job.
0: Absolutely, the last bit of TV news this week: uh, John Stewart left The Daily Show, as covered in in kind of like almost microscopic depth depth by everybody. I think so I saw someone kind of tweeting, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Nathan Rabin. Said something like, uh, "You do realize that John Stewart is not ET; <laughs> like he is still going to be around. <laughs> it's not like he's leaving us forever. Like you know, he's just he's just left the TV show." And I, think I saw someone else say that. You know, our kids will ask us, "Where were we? Where John Stewart uh, left the Daily Show?" Because there doesn't seem to be any real record of or think pieces or anything kind of uh, about it. But anyway, yeah, uh, (laughs) not kind of being too snarky about it. The 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 man did a a good
1: stretch. Yeah, sixteen years is pretty is pretty good for any TV show, and uh, I I think it's just a shame that he didn't get a chance to enjoy his status as the longest-serving late-night host on television because. He only held that record for about two months. Mm. As soon as Letterman left, he was the elder statesman, and then he had two months of that, and now it's uh, Jimmy Kimmel. But I think that, yeah, the 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 outpouring of emotion and and kind of grief, I guess, over him leaving at once feels both wildly out of proportion and kind of appropriate because I do feel as if, for you know, during that sixteen years time, and particularly. Uh, since sort of the early 2000s. That show under him, I think, has probably shaped the political consciousness of an entire generation. I don't Mm. think that that's too big of a statement. You know, the people who would have been children when he started would have grown up and think seeing The Daily Show as as a, a source of news and a source of opinion. I think he probably did a lot to shape a lot of young minds, even though he was really uh uncomfortable with that mantle a lot of the time and even though in his final week they tried to do a bit to deflate that sense of importance such as on the penultimate episode having him do a whole bit where uh, they played uh, that they, they talked about all the things that he had supposedly destroyed such as fox news and then indicating how fox news was still around and in some ways is more powerful than ever mm. um i still do think that he was someone who wielded a huge amount of power and who uh, affected a lot of people 's lives, not least the people who worked on the show, who he gave kind of careers to uh, that was the, the best thing uh, about the the finale for me was Stephen Colbert coming on and then uh, mortifying T- John Stewart by going off script and delivering this incredibly impassioned and sweet speech to him as he just really struggles to break from crying. <laughs>
2: been asked and have the privilege to say something to you that is not in the prompter right now. Please don't do Here's this. the thing, John. You said to me and to many other people here years ago never yes. to thank you because yes. we owe you nothing. Thank it you. is one That's of right. the few times I've known you to be dead wrong. We owe you, and not just what you did for our career by employing us to come on this tremendous show that you made. We owe you because we learned from you. We learned from you, by example, how to do a show with intention, how to work with clarity, how to treat people with respect. You are infuriatingly good at your job, okay? And all of us, all of us who were lucky enough to work with you, and you can edit this out later, all of us who were lucky enough to work with you for 16 years are better at our jobs because we got to watch you do yours. And we are better people for having known you. You are a great artist and a good man,
1: which really touched me because uh, it's the exact same way that I respond to people praising me, which is to try and shut them up. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime anyone says anything nice to me, I always just try and deflect. So seeing someone have to kind of suffer through five minutes of just being adored and just breaking down and crying was something I could appreciate.
0: Mm. Well, if you ever leave this show, Ed, don't think you're going to get that kind of treatment. Uh, (laughs) It'll be like, I'll probably go back and re-edit the old episodes with the new person's voice in um so yeah <laughs> don't get comfortable Bloody lucas yeah i know uh lastly uh this is the last bit of kind of film news we'll talk about uh this week before heading into this week's topic if you can call it that is show favorite josh trank appears to be committing career suicide in a mm. very public way for those of you who don't know josh trank is the director of a, a little film called chronicle which is a lot of fun uh it's a it's a decent debut But then he, from that he kind of got uh, two massive gigs. He got the gig on the the Fantastic Four reboot. And he also got the job um, working on a Star Wars anthology film earlier this year. He got fired from the Star Wars anthology film on the basis of some of the problems he'd been having on the set of Fantastic Four. Apparently quite hard to work with. We don't hugely like to comment on rumours and things on this show. But if you want to find out more, check them out after the jump. But yeah, it's kind of weird that when Fantastic Four actually came out this year, uh, this week... It's gone down like a shit sandwich, which doesn't really come as much of a surprise. But he has uh, kind of gone down in the most undignified way possible by tweeting stuff like, oh, you know, this time last year I had a version of this film that would have been amazing, um, but you'll never know. And then he kind of promptly kind of deleted that tweet, which is, you know, a classy way to to kind of go down swinging. And I just don't know whether he's trying to get himself deliberately blacklisted or whether he enjoys working on low-budget films so much that he wants to make sure that's the only thing he can ever do.
1: Yeah, there's a there was a good article on com about this where they compared him tweeting that the day before the film came out as breaking Hollywood's omerta uh, uh, in reference to the code of silence around the Mafia, which is essentially that if a film shoot doesn't go well, and most film shoots don't go well in some way or another, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of film shoots that run over budget or that have conflicts on set and there's very few that run entirely smoothly. Everyone just doesn't talk about it right. <laughs> um, unless the, the shoot is just kind of so disastrous that there's no way not to talk about it. But even then, you try and put on a brave face and, and kind of grin and grit through it and then maybe five years down the line, you know, if you're Michael Bay, you start talking about how you didn't. You, you didn't think the last Transformers film was very good. You know, that's that's the that's the point in your career at which you complain about things is a few years down the line when it's behind you and you've maybe got a few more gigs under your belt. The I the idea of uh maybe offering a legitimate grievance, you know, the sense that hit the film seemed to have been taken away from him and rejigged and reshot and all this sort of thing, uh airing that the day before the film came out seems a little bit like sour grapes and also seems like a really good way to make sure that you never work for fox again
0: yeah yeah especially, or, or, or with any kind of budget whatsoever
1: especially since that tweet the, the way the film ended up playing out which it opened to 26 point something million dollars which is about half of what people thought the film was going to open to mm. um he that he instantly becomes a scapegoat for that because that's all the media could talk about was not just that the film was getting kind of horrendous reviews, but that the director disowned it <laughs> before it had even come out. Uh, he, even if he was trying to distance himself, he did it in such a way that makes him an easy kind of target for anyone who wants to say, yeah, he was responsible for this. We can't ever hire him again.
0: Yeah. I, I find it a very strange thing for for him to do. I mean, he, he probably, at that point, he still had a decent debut under his belt. He's obviously got a lot of talent. He could have just taken the hit from Star Wars, which was connected to uh, to Fantastic Four. Uh, there, there was, Is it Simon Kimberg, I think he was kind of producer on both of those films yeah. or involved. Take the hit on that. Turtle up for a year. Come back and do something a bit more interesting. Don't, 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 don't kind of send a tweet out and delete it it's you know it's it doesn't kind of do him any favors whatsoever and kind of
1: makes him out to be a bit of a burke it does seem to play into the image that has emerged of him as being someone who was perhaps not prepared for the rigors of making a film on that budget mm. and perhaps being overwhelmed by the pressure and it seems to be the case that he was so overwhelmed by it that that's why the studio stepped in as they just lost confidence in his ability to deliver the film and if that was overwhelming then I think getting, you know, whatever it is, 9% on Rotten Tomatoes for the film probably also made him want to be defensive and ready access to a Twitter account mean, meant that he had a way of saying that instantly, you know. It's the sort of thing where uh, if, he, if Twitter had existed 30 years ago, I'm sure Francis Ford Coppola would have live tweeted all of the disasters of the Apocalypse Now set, mm. but because there's a twitter offers an unfiltered way for someone to get that opinion out there and it doesn't have to go through a whole team of people saying no maybe you shouldn't say this <laughs> you know it wasn't like if if it was the old days it would have had to be in a press release saying that and no one would have put it out mm. so uh, that i think the the medium there helps in helps him to um burn every bridge <laughs> in like an instant
0: You've just kind of given me the idea to do a parody Twitter account, uh, which is tweets from Francis Ford Coppola on the set of of (laughs) Apocalypse Now. Bad day today. Hashtag Harvey Keitel. Hashtag heart attack. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah.
1: Or or, or several accounts doing Fitzcarraldo. Oh, imagine. Could you imagine? uh, Kinski in all caps. Mm -hmm. Just being... Referring to
0: himself in the third person. (laughs) I, Kinski, cannot believe... Uh, this hashtag shoot. Yeah,
1: I think food is terrible. (laughs) Herzog threatened to shoot me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's it's um a weird thing, isn't it? That like every every moment of our lives is now lived online somewhere, and yeah, we can't escape anything ever. Which makes me kind of like wonder how kind of some films have managed to stay so secretive, despite the kind of mass speculation. We still really don't know anything about some. Things like the, the new Star Wars movie. We don't really know anything about it other than wild speculation in today's day and age. That's quite heartening.
1: Yeah, I think that J.J. J. Abrams, from Lost onwards, I think he understands the way the internet works. I think, seeming to come from quite a geeky background, he understands the importance of keeping that stuff kind of locked down. Mm. And I imagine there are some contracts that have been written with very strong language about what will happen if people release <laughs> information. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If they have the power to destroy people's lives, then that's a really good way of uh, of keeping the information out of the public domain. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, this this week's episode is is a bit of an odd one. We don't really
0: have a set topic, but like Ed said at the start of the show, he is twenty nine years old now, which makes me feel quite old, and but also is you know bully for him. Well done! It's your birthday, and um, he gets. Th- by right now, in what is sure to become a shot reverse shot tradition, to talk about whatever the fuck he wants. So the next kind of 20 minutes could be interesting discourse about things that that Ed finds interesting, about films or you know topics he wants to discuss, or it could be political rant or just like kind of axe grinding or you know just kind of trying <laughs> to settle old scores. I don't really know what's going to happen. So, yeah, it could be interesting. It just reminds me, I kind of, uh, when this idea came to us, it reminds me of that bit from The Simpsons where I think it might be the Cape Fear episode. One of the cops says to Chief Wigan when they're busting someone, Hey, Chief, can I hold my gun sideways? And he's like, Yeah, of course you can, birthday boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I always like that idea that on your birthday you can kind of do what you want. So, Ed, this is your chance to hold the gun sideways. What the fuck are we going to talk about?
1: Okay, uh, this idea kind of came to me because. Uh, around about this time last year, because it was also my birthday, mm. I decided to look up uh, what was the number one film the day that I was born. Because uh, I, I knew the song that was number one, and I'm ashamed to say it was Lady in Red. Wow. But, M- mine was uh, The the Tide is High by Blondie. That is about a thousand times better than no, Lady in Red. Okay. I'll take it. Um, and I was wondering uh, what was the number one films, and it was James Cameron's Aliens. Ooh. And uh, so... I thought, oh, that's, that was interesting, but then I was reminded a few weeks ago about uh, the, the kind of the difference between Aliens and Alien as a sequel. Uh, because I went to go and watch Magic Mike XXL, mm. <laughs> the sequel to the uh, Steven Soderbergh stripper movie, and uh, I, my first thought after watching it was, well, there were two thoughts: one, that was a lot of fun because it's a very silly film and it's a lot of fun, but also it is basically the Aliens to Magic Mike's Alien. <laughs> because uh Magic Bike is a kind of depressing film <laughs> about how difficult it is to exist on the socio economic ladder and it's a film with relatively high stakes for the characters in the if uh Channing Tatum's character can't get enough money together, his life will be destroyed. And Magic Mike XXL is just a kind of a big fun party movie with literally zero stakes. Mm. Uh, And I thought it was interesting that in both instances you had a uh, sequel that took one kind of one tiny element of the previous film, the, you know, fighting and killing aliens or the stripping, Mm. (laughs) and then just basically makes that the focus of the entire sequel. Uh, And in both cases, it kind of really working.
0: Yeah. I, Aliens is always held up as an example of a sequel which is better than the original which I always think is unfair because it's an apple and oranges situation because Alien is a haunted house movie in space and Aliens is a war film and they're very different and we've talked quite a lot about uh, something called sequelitis which is the idea that uh, a film is successful without being expected to be successful and then they cobble together a sequel to cash in. And it's generally made up of leftover ideas from the first film that weren't quite good enough to make it, or just repeating the same thing twice. And the good thing about Aliens, to hold that up as an example, is that it sidesteps sequelitis like by being different enough to not even be capable of doing that. It can't. It can uh, take place in the same world, but with all different kind of characters, a different tone, uh, a different atmosphere, and succeed. Another example of that, that I'd have kind of recently is um, if you look at the two sequels to the first Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, uh, takes the same characters, uh, ups the stakes, changes the story and the location, and it moves it on significantly. Return of the Jedi rehashes the first film. <laughs> oh, there's a Death Star. That's another one. Oh, let's blow that up again. Uh, and uh, you could see that uh, one suffers from sequelitis where the other one does not. And uh, I'm heartened to hear that Magic Mike XXL is the aliens of, of stripper movies, which is nice. I haven't seen it yet.
1: It, yeah, it is a lot of fun. It's also if you've ever wanted to someone do a very lurid dance to uh, Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Oh, I've, th- well, I mean that's on my bucket list. <laughs> then, really and truthfully, I think this is the film for you because I'm not sure how many other films have managed to to work that in. Mm. Um, but yeah, I thought that you know something to discuss would for this for this episode in kind of a, a loose way would be what I kind of thought of as uh ambitious sequels sequels that basically try and build on what the first film did uh and actually succeed as opposed to a lot of sequels which like you say just kind of try and redo what the first film did and sometimes that you know ambition isn't a de facto good like the matrix sequels are very ambitious in terms of the way they try and expand the philosophy and the the worldview of the first film Mm. don't really work as films (laughs) no No. spider-man 2 not a very ambitious film in terms of building on the first film but still good yeah the ambition isn't isn't the be all and end all but um yeah in terms of of this sort of thing aliens obviously a big one the star wars films one that um i'm always kind of fascinated by is batman returns Mm. where essentially you have the same director of the first film coming back tim burton Uh, But this time, because he directed one of the most successful films of all time up to that point, they basically let him go completely nuts and he turns it from being a a kind of pulpy comic book adaptation to being this kind of fantasia of German expressionist art that happens to have Batman in it. Mm. And then you can
0: also see how that doesn't play out with the Joel Schumacher sequels because I imagine that after Batman Returns, which is probably the best of those kind of first uh, round of Batman films, kind of by a considerable distance, I, I think. Um, after that, they kind of Tim Burton didn't want to come back or whatever, and they sat Joel Schumacher down and said, well, what ideas have you got to, to kind of push this a bit further? And he probably just sat there for a second and just said, more villains? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's essentially what they approach those two take, these kind of more camp, more villains. Whereas that second film feels like kind of a leap Forward, it has its own. It has a different feel to Batman. It has a different tone to Batman, but it's still Batman.
1: Yeah, and I also think that the the tone of it that it it it, it kind of starts like a fairy tale with you know Oswald Cobblepot being put into a basket and sent down the river and then being raised by penguins in the sewer. Mm, sure. You know, it you know that that straight away it says this isn't anything like real life. So you can't really approach it in any kind of realistic way. Whereas the Joel Schumacher one, I feel takes kind of a step back from that in terms of the tone of the story it's telling. Yeah. But that means that you end up with it that makes it harder for you to kind of look at two faces, uh two faces lair and think, Who built this?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Did, does are his henchmen all contractors who designed this room to be half one thing and one the other? Did they hire someone to come in and then kill them? You know, you don't really have those many questions about uh, about you know what the penguin's doing because it takes it into you know so far into fancy and obviously you have the the whole supernatural element in that uh, uh, Selena Kyle is brought back to life by cats, which, which you, know, you know can it, happen. Can happen happens a lot when uh, where Batman is concerned. But you know, it it it's goes into an area of such kind of obvious over the top fantasy, and uh, Joel Schumacher's film, so certainly that first one, kept the over the top visuals, but I think tried scaled back the story or the the kind of the weirdness of the story just enough that it all just looks kind of ridiculous. It all it doesn't kind of match up the tone and the image.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't uh, actually watched those Batman films in quite a long time. I don't ever want to see three and four again. But yeah, the the first two are kind of good. Uh, I, I, remember, I remember the first one being okay and the second one being a lot. But is there remote
1: control penguins, kind of giant penguins that got bombs on them in the second one? They have, yeah, they have missile packs. Oh, uh, right, which, yeah. Which I remember because that was the, the one toy from Batman Returns that I owned was you could buy the little penguins and they had the missiles that you, you kind of pressed down and they fired out. And as a sort of six, seven-year-old, who really shouldn't have seen that film because that film is way too intense for a very young child. Mm. Those toys were were very, very cool. Mm. I think superhero film-wise,
0: Batman Returns has got some of the kind of best production design you're likely to see, but then it is Tim Burton, so you're kind of going to get that. But I think the thing about Batman Returns that I'm kind of thinking now is it kind of just makes me wish that Tim Burton would kind of, you know, make some good films again.
1: Yeah, his... he is probably the the kind of the key example for me of a director who just so went off the deep end, and I don't think will ever find his way back. And I find that really heartbreaking. Even though occasionally you'll see, like, uh, I don't know if you ever saw Frankenweenie, but no, I didn't. That was really that was really that one I, I really liked. I found it very touching, very moving. Bearing in mind, I saw it about a week after my dog died. <laughs> so I think I was prepared to cry at a film about someone bringing their dog back to life. Mm. But it's very sweet and it feels very personal, you know, in a way that basically nothing he made post Mars attacks feels personal. <laughs>
0: Which is yeah. let's let's not forget Mars attacks must be coming out to being 20 years ago. Yeah, I think next year will be its 20th anniversary. Wowza. That's quite quite considerable a stretch of time for someone who who kind of made an, who has made an awful lot of great films
1: yeah a lot of great films and who i think read for for a lot of people certainly uh when i was at school and i knew people who were studying film he was i think someone that a lot of people looked at as being the the quintessential example of a modern day auteur mm. in that he whatever film he took up there would be black and white stripes everywhere <laughs> you no know? he he put his visual stamp on everything he did incredibly hard and uh that worked for a little while and then at a certain point i guess he felt he'd said all that he had to say in things like edward scissorhands or or even batman returns which i think probably reflects a lot of his or, or edward you know they all they're all films about outsiders and they're mm-hmm. all films about people who feel out of place in in their world um and i guess planet of the apes is also that but in a way that's very kind of glossy and false and doesn't really uh, feel true in any way. Certainly not when you cast uh, Mark Wahlberg. You know, he's not someone who's kind of the quintessential outsider.
0: No. Uh, it's just reminded me how bad that Planet of the Apes movie is.
1: Yeah, I feel everyone needs to be reminded of that. Now that we've had two, you know, fairly decent recent Planet of the Apes films. Yeah. People need, need people need to remember that there is one just ungodly, fucking awful <laughs> Planet of the Apes movie out there.
0: mm well, not just one. There's quite a few of the original ones that aren't particularly mm. good. Um, no,
1: but at least they're interesting. Yeah, they're, they're like they get weird. They weird do get weird. Time travely.
0: Could you possibly, if you have the means, uh, to look up what was number one on the day I was born? I can. Yes. Well, I was born on uh, November the twentieth, nineteen eighty. I'm kind of hoping it's going to be Empire Strikes Back, but it really isn't going to be. But it would just be cool if it was. This is thrilling radio. Uh, <laughs> What else was that out in 1980? 19... It was Razor the Lost Ark in 1980.
1: That was 1981. Uh damn it. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Uh, it would have been uh, Private Benjamin.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Um, for which Goldie Horn was Oscar nominated? Jesus Christ, that was number one for ages. Was it? <laughs> yeah, it was number one from October the 12th until December the 7th. Good grief. When it was knocked off by Flash Gordon.
0: Wow, strong ear for films. Wow, Private Benjamin. That's a film I kind of haven't thought about in quite some time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's my birthday uh, uh, movie. Maybe in November we can talk about Private Benjamin and <laughs> uh, and it's it's kind of place in the culture. What else do you want to talk about on your birthday, Ed? You can literally talk about anything.
1: In, in terms of um, like the the Fantastic Four thing. Mm. Do you think, because obviously I think there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing about the possibility of superhero films failing and like the bubble bursting, especially coming on the back of Ant-Man, which wasn't like a failure, but I think was didn't do as well as some previous Marvel films. In do you think there's any significance to it doing badly, or do you think it's just a confluence of terrible things all happening at once?
0: I've got a secondary follow-up question to this, which is the trend at the minute to be giving kind of like younger directors who have got kind of cool ideas, big films is what happened to Ant-Man and Fantastic Four slash uh, anthology Star Wars film. Is that going to kind of curtail that? And we'll see films kind of uh, less trusted to people like that. Going back to the original point, I not really sure the sample size is big enough to kind of say Mm. uh, yes to that. I kind of also find it hard to define, like you say, uh, a failure for Marvel. Because Ant-Man, I saw Ant-Man on Monday and I thought it was a lot of fun. Especially the last half an hour, I did think, feel like uh, it probably could have lost 15 minutes somewhere in there. Because it was two hours long. Uh, Yeah, probably could have done with the Titan. But I think that any origin story sometimes can feel a bit flabby. Uh yeah I I'm I'm not entirely sure that either of those things is is hugely kind of significant. I think Trank is someone who probably was a gamble at the start and there was they probably had kind of thought it might not pay off and probably had a contingency in place and I think Ant-Man I'm not really sure what its failure would signify to Marvel because it's not like the idea was too weird because they've done Guardians of the Galaxy and that was okay. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that um, Edgar Wright is a proven director in the sense that you know his films do connect with an audience. But when they replaced him with Peyton Reed, uh, the director would bring it on. They 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 didn't really kind of they didn't really have to kind of do too much to get it over the finish line. I think Ant Man is Ant Man's gonna be a weird one to see in in kind of like a year's time when Ant Man has appeared in all the other co- all the other films. Because the Guardians of the Galaxy, like I said, that's a weird one, but that's kind of out on its own because I don't think it's going to cross over very much. Whereas the Ant Man thing will, so I don't really know what place Marvel are carving it out for it in in this Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't really understand how significant they want it to be and and how much they really cared if it if it kind of did underperform slightly.
1: Yeah, it didn't seem in in the year of you know the Avengers sequel. It mm. probably wasn't that high up on their list of of uh, priorities. Um, yeah. I think that I I a lot of people have said this but I think the uh you know heart of darkness-esque documentary that's going to be made about what went wrong on Fantastic Four will probably be very interesting because mm. they went with someone who was relatively untested but who had made a very distinctive first film and they they Clearly trusted him uh, in the early going in that they acquiesced to things like him wanting to cast Michael B. Jordan because he liked working with him on uh, on Chronicle and because he's a great actor. Of wanting to cast relative unknowns in all the lead parts, of wanting to make it kind of a little serious and to have, from what I've heard because I haven't seen the film, but um, having sequences in it, the, the transformation sequences be inspired by David Cronenberg, <laughs> mm. um, you know, of taking it in some in some odd directions, but then at a certain point, they clearly just lost all confidence in him. Uh, mm. I, I think that uh, that is probably going to end up be u- being used as an excuse to not hand so much creative control over to young, untested directors. Mm. Even though, um, you know jurassic world is the third most successful film of all time (laughs) and that was handed over to a young untested director who by most accounts seemed to have you know reasonably uh free hand in what he wanted that film to be about in terms of its weird meta commentary on the nature of blockbusters uh, Mm. even though it may not have been the most kind of strong or coherently directed film Mm. Um, well it's telling that that
0: he hasn't signed
1: on for the sequel no, although I think he is having a hand in writing it, so right. I think he he maybe doesn't want to <laughs> be behind the camera. Maybe just because he's he's weighing his options about being involved in Star Wars, which is an, a rumor that's being floated around. But do you think that
0: um, Fantastic Four will ever be made into a good film? Because personally, it's not even it's not a film I want to see ever. Because I think the Fantastic Four is something that works fantastically well on the comic book page in a kind of pulpy 50s way. Mm. But having, like, a rubber dude and, like, a man who goes on fire the whole time and a thing that, that no matter how you design it, can't not look like a giant turd
1: <laughs> is just not particularly interesting. Uh, yeah, i have I struggled to see... I'd struggle to, to see how it would work as live action. I think it could work as a cartoon. Mm, um, sure. Because I remember in the... I think the 90s, I guess it would have been... There was a cartoon series which I used to enjoy quite a lot, and I think it, you, in that medium, you can handle that to, the tones quite well. Is that the goofiness of the concept isn't readily apparent because everything's cartoonish? So the idea of someone being able to stretch, you know, it doesn't look that silly. Um, and also, and, and you could also have the, the like the sweetness of Ben Grimm having his his kind of forlorn love for a blind girl, which um, is is kind of the. Emotional heart of of that store that series or various incarnations of that series in a lot of ways that sort of stuff can work in and it works in comics. I think that there are so many. Uh, you ask a lot of the audience for uh, for the Fantastic Four in live action that it can't really be done seriously as this film tried, mm. and it can't. But if you try and do it kind of cartoonish, such as the the earlier film. Directed by Tim Story, which did include at one point a dog putting its paws over its eyes to hide its view of a disaster happening. Uh, sure, that's going too far in the other direction. So I'm not sure that there's a happy medium between kind of the acknowledging the silliness of the concept and uh, trying to make it kind of a, 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 a feel like a real film. Mm. Tying things up to something we talked about slightly earlier, I think probably the strongest adaptation
0: of the Fantastic Four has been. Um, the kind of methadone infused one that uh, is done in Arrested Development season four <laughs> uh, with, with Maria Bamford uh, and uh, Tobias um, playing rock monster the not invisible girl. Um, yeah, that's probably about as strong as as uh, as that gets.
1: Or the, um, uh, the the twisted evil version of them that show up in the Venture Brothers, where uh, the fantastic the Mister Fantastic equivalent is voiced by Stephen Colbert again, tying it into something we were talking about earlier. And he's monstrous. <laughs> he's, yeah. like, just kind of evil. Uh, the thing is mentally handicapped. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, the, the invisible girl, it just goes... Her skin goes see-through so you can see her organs. That works. Yeah. I, I feel that works. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd well. like
0: to see the human torch being an actual human torch. As in, <laughs> he's not on fire. He just has, like, a kind of dim light that shines out the top of his head and needs his batteries re every two hours.
1: Um, I'm pretty... Sh- I'm pretty sure there's at least one X Man who is basically that. Yeah. Oh, did you see the Deadpool trailer this week? I did, yeah. That looks fun. It does look fun. It looks uh like they've got the tone quite well. They didn't they didn't uh hint too much at the, the mettiness of it of him talking to the camera, but I've seen that in like test footage that was been released, which I think is the sort of thing that I'm really, really hopeful will work because it does mm. look like it could be a hell of a lot of fun if they get the tone right.
0: There was the funny bit where he's been wheeled into the, the operating room and he was like, don't make my suit green or animated. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of pretty funny. Yeah. But it also does highlight the fact that Ryan Reynolds is, as we've said on this show before, box office poison, and Deadpool will no doubt fail.
1: Yeah, which is a shame, really, because what I've, I think I've liked him whenever I've seen him in films. He can he can be like really charismatic. Like He's really mm. good in Adventureland, where they basically have to play kind of a... A scumbag, but yeah. the sort of scumbag where you could think, yeah, I could see Kristen Stewart kind of falling for him and everything like that. But something about the films he chooses, people just don't want to like him. Mm. Even the good
0: ones, like, you know, he just, you know, people don't, yeah, you know, go for it. I think, oh what, I, oh, what did I see? Oh, I saw a weird body swap comedy he was in with Jason Bateman.
1: Oh, yeah. The Switch or The Change-Up? The Change-Up, the change up, yeah. The Switch yeah. is uh, another film with Jason Bateman where he swaps uh, his sperm for someone else's so that he can impregnate Jennifer Aniston.
0: <laughs> sure, sure, that sounds likely. But I only caught like 10 minutes of this film, which was, is no doubt very like bad. But I have to say that Bateman and uh, Reynolds looking like they're having a lot of fun playing each other. And Ryan Reynolds, there was a bit where because he's a playboy, and obviously Jason Bateman's a family man. Um, Ryan Reynolds has got uh one of his dates coming over, uh, but she's like heavily pregnant, and because he's into that kind of thing. But it's obviously him, Jason, him as Jason Bateman trying to deal with that was actually quite funny. But yeah, the rest, the rest of the film, I'm sure, kind of fell down on many kind of body swap, uh, kind of shortcomings. The body swap comedy really has never really evolved past that one simple idea of like, these people are different, let's swap their bodies, the fun we'll have.
1: Mm. The the only thing that really sets them up is how well the actors do at playing the other person. Mm. You know, it's that's, that's kind of one of the things that makes Face Off, you know, kind of ridiculously enjoyable, is it's fun watching John Travolta do what he thinks a Nicolas Cage impression is, and watch Nicolas yeah. Cage do what he thinks a John Travolta impression is. Mm, uh, and... I, I think
0: it's weird to think that the face-off actually happened, featuring two of Hollywood's biggest mentalists. Mm. Uh, who managed to get them in the same film and get them to kind of yeah hold it together somehow. I think like a really serious body swap, like kind of comedy, or no, like comedy, like a, a body swap drama where like a traffic warden swaps with like a like an art surgeon. <laughs> and he's got to talk him through doing kind of complex keyhole surgeries would be i mean i'd watch it absolutely oh, yeah i don't know for how long cool let's let's let uh wrap this up uh with a bit of uh, shot reverse shot recommends and i'll go first this week kind of was reminded that it's 10 years ago uh that the show nathan barley aired um so i watched that this week and also, 4OD uh, in, in, in Britain has kind of changed now. It's not so much like catch up TV and what you've missed. It's now everything they've ever had and they've ever made is now all in one place, which is kind of cool. Um, and Nathan Barley is something that's reasoned, uh, kind of hitherto been not that available. So I rewatched it this week. And 10 years, uh, it still could be a fucking documentary.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a show that I, I'm, whenever I'm tempted to, to go and rewatch, I just remember how uh suicidally depressed it made me feel (laughs)
0: because it's so bleak (laughs) and the idiots genuinely are winning and like you know we've kind of had that original kind of burst of of shoreditch twattery but but you know 10 years ago and now it's uh like just even kind of like slipped into beyond self-parody like last well was it kind of last month i think the first cereal cafe was opened in london uh, where you pay uh, six pounds for a bowl of cereal or with whatever milk you'd like. And I just thought this is an idea that would, would have just been like in the background of Nathan Barley. And yeah, it's it's something that kind of uh, both amuses me and upsets me in equal measure.
1: Yeah, Chris Morris is, you know, our, our most unsparing satirist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously Charlie Brooker as well. Um, clearly they keyed into what was going on and were despairing. Mm. Um, I I will also recommend uh, a TV show. It's a a new TV show, uh, which has just debuted over here on Hulu. It's called Difficult People, and it is a series uh, starring Billy Eichner from Billy on the Street and uh, the later seasons of Parks and Recreation, who is uh, one of the very the the loudest and funniest people <laughs> currently working today, and uh, Julie Klausner, who is uh, also incredibly funny. And it's basically about them playing sort of the fictionalised versions of themselves as uh, an actor and writer respectively trying to make it in New York and just being uh, like the title says, difficult people, very hard for people to get on with and it's incredibly dark and scabrous um, it has a lot of very uh, good kind of supporting cast showing up in the first two episodes uh, Andrea Martin played uh, Julie Clauster's mother uh, James Urbaniac and he's very very kind of funny and very proper as a uh, a guy who works for NPR and uh, also uh, Nate Corddry who also showed up on the Daily Show finale this week um, hmm. uh, shows up as a, a man who ends up sort of having a threesome with them uh, and it's it's it, it has a great uh, in the second episode particularly has a great David Byrne joke which uh, I, I, I appreciated because it hinges entirely on the fact that you kind of need to know that David Byrne cycles a lot. And I, Well, that is niche. I yeah, I, I greatly enjoy the specificity of the that particular joke, uh, and the whole show is just you know constant uh, zinger after zinger. And in uh, a world in which we're still waiting for a new season of Kirby Enthusiasm, it it's, uh kind of scratches an itch for me. Mm. That that came out of the the TCA thing
0: this week, didn't it? That that because Louis is going on extended break, which is sad, but also kind of highlighted the fact that was also brought up by a kind of a panel with Jeff Garland that both uh, Louis CK and uh, Larry David are in kind of bizarre situations where neither of them is under any network pressure at all to make any episodes for their show. And the only way they will ever do it is if they've got something they're happy with and they'll want to do, which is, you know, a crazy and uh, enviable situation for anyone to be in, to have uh, backing financially and, uh, network or studio wise and also be trusted that you only want to do things if you're creatively fulfilled by it
1: yeah and i think that's the reason why those shows have maintained such a a, a level of quality uh while still being written by a single person or or you know a, a very small cadre of people mm. you know if, if they were being forced to make a season a year uh it really wouldn't work out that well i think and certainly in the case of of louis if he was having to write direct edit every year he would probably go mad yeah or he'd have yeah. to hand off the duties to other people which probably uh, wouldn't work out it would destroy its distinctiveness a little bit mm, absolutely i agree
0: anyway so that's it for this week ed's birthday's over now we can go back to being mean to him and yeah you can uh subscribe to the show on itunes or stitcher smart radio what's the other one ed that i keep forgetting uh
1: radio fm
0: radio fm can uh, go to our website which is player FM, player fm player fm you get it wrong every time <laughs> it's like player fm radio fm is the new gareth edwards gareth evans <laughs> like we have no idea which one's which you can find our website which is SRS, srs podcast.podbean.com and on there you can find links to the twitter the facebook and all the other subscription stuff which is cool we will be back next week with something entirely different but until then it is goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me